If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. This week on the Speech Uncensored podcast, we're breaking down the voice evaluation. Christy Knickerbocker is diving in deep onto what makes up a behavioral voice evaluation, what makes up acoustic and aerodynamic voice evaluations, and all about video stroboscopy as well. So I'm super pumped to have Christy here. She is just a wealth of information. I feel like if you're not following her on Instagram, you are missing out. She just unleashes so much information there. She's constant absorbing fun things. Um, So yeah, you're just going to get more of that in this episode. Christy just has so much to share. I'm really pleased. Um, So I'm Leanne Porter, your host. This is the Speech Uncensored Podcast, and now let's get into it. Hello, Christy. How's it going today? It's going so great, Leanne. How are you? I'm doing good. I am so pleased to have you on the podcast today. I'm really excited about our topic, um, going into all the components of voice evaluation today with you. So, all right. Where should we start? We should start with you. Okay, Christy Knickerbocker, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a speech language pathologist and I specialize in singing voice um, and voice and voice disorders. I got into this field because I was an injured singer my senior year of high school. I had a vocal lesion and so I was the recipient of voice rehabilitation and vocal surgery and then more voice rehab after that. And it affected what I ended up doing in college because my my acceptance and scholarship was based on singing voice at the time. And with rehab, it was very clear that I wasn't progressing as fast um, towards the music major. And so my voice teacher and I had a talk and she suggested I look into a different career path. So kind of a blow to the ego, but best thing I could have ever done and turned into a really fulfilling career because I remembered back to my voice therapist. And I was worried initially as a kid, you know, that a speech therapist wouldn't know anything about singing voice. And so I was almost resistant to go because I thought that she would know nothing. And she ended up being absolutely everything I didn't think she would be. It was great. Um, She was well-versed in music, knew exactly how to sing, knew exactly how to talk my language. And it made all the difference. So my thought was I can marry my love of medicine and healthcare and music all into one career. I decided to, to change majors. And then after I graduated, I worked at a hospital for about a year and a half, got my license, did my CF year, um, all while still attending, um, in-person and online courses for, uh, for voice, knowing that I still wanted to specialize in that. And then, Uh, developed a private practice and started really small and grew and I'm still growing the private practice and the online educational part of it is Autempo Voice Center. 
Yeah, that's what I really like about um, your online presence too, is like you have a private practice, but you also develop um, tools for people to use um, who don't specialize in voice, but who will treat voice patients. And so I think that's really helpful. (laughs) Yeah, it's wild to think that uh, with our degree, we have such a huge scope and to be able to treat effectively in every area of that, I just don't think it's humanly possible because we were chatting earlier, but I just, all I do anymore is voice and I wouldn't be comfortable treating aphasia. Um, so I would refer on to someone else who does that more frequently. But for for rural SLPs, so for, for people who may not really have the option of referring a person because it's hours away of a drive for a voice specialist, my goal with creating the resources that I was using my own clinic anyway was to help teach them, but then give them options to not have to feel like they had to pretend or that they had to just tell the patient, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to help you. And then the patient doesn't get any help. So Good. All right. So, all right. So let's begin with a background on voice disorders and then kind of flow into like maybe some different types of voice disorders that people might come across and all the different places that we can treat voice. So voice disorders, a general overview is that anything that is causing a person to have difficulty communicating with phonation. So any issue with the ability of the vocal folds to come together to vibrate and there are types of those so a good general organizational category um, would be organic and that's just any kind of voice problem that results in changes to your lungs or changes to the larynx or the vocal tract, the epilarynx, as Ingo Tietze would call it, the throat area, the pharynx, and then the oral cavities and and nasal uh, structures as well. And you can have structural changes that would occur, you know, maybe pathologically, we could say, where something's growing, um, like a granuloma or a cyst or a polyp or even vocal nodules, or you have uh, paralysis. So maybe one vocal fold is stuck in a position and the other one is still working, but structurally you have inadequacy because you can't get a complete closure. You also have an organic type of voice disorder that we would consider neurogenic, and that's going to be problems that are coming from the brain and uh, functioning of the the mechanism. So that's going to be things that may happen from diseases like uh, progressive neurological things like ALS or Parkinson's. Also, you can just have essential vocal tremor and not have anything else going on, which makes it challenging to treat. And spasmodic dysphonia, so you have issues with, with spasms, either making the vocal cords closed really tightly out of your control or open when they're not supposed to. So you have the adductor and the abductor, different types of spasmodic dysphonia. And then you can also have uh, functional. So that's going to be anything that you might have going on with commonly muscle tension dysphonia. So things that might occur from being sick with a cold or an upper respiratory infection or laryngitis of some kind where you're still having to vocalize or trying to phonate and you end up recruiting muscles that you might not normally need when the vocal folds are functioning in a healthy way or they're not as swollen and heavy. You adopt that new configuration of phonation attempts and then maybe you get better and your vocal folds are back to normal state. So they're not as fluffy and they're not as heavy, but you're still using that same muscle recruitment and that can result in fatigue or feeling like you have to strain to get the sound to come out. Um, And it also can cause pain. 
so um, odynophonia. And so functional voice disorders can be treated similarly and or, or differently than organic. So can you give me an example of things we might see that are coming from an organic pathology? Like, because you mentioned spasmodic dysphonia for neurogenic, um, polyps for structural, muscle tension dysphonia for functional. What would be something we would see with organic? So organic can be if you had any kind of issue with the structure. So changes, like if you had a something come in and have like trauma to the larynx, we had a child not too long ago who had like fallen on a scooter and the damage was caused by that blunt force trauma to the larynx. And so you may have something happen there. I don't necessarily, I wouldn't categorize that as neurogenic because it was something that happened outside, but maybe that results in paralysis. Organic could be granuloma, could be vocal fold swelling, like Rinky's edema. So if you were a smoker and female and over 50, you have a lot greater chance of developing that gelatinous fluid that grows underneath the epithelium in the rinky space and stays there unless you get it surgically removed. That can It's actually physical and organic change to the tissue itself. Okay. All right. That makes a lot more sense. Thank you for clarifying that. And like, as you've been going through this, this is like, this is like such like foundational basic knowledge. And I'm thinking about when I get voice patients, how I have not been considering that. And that's like step one. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Leanne. (laughs) But it's so complicated. Like it's difficult because with that base knowledge, you have to also be listening to the patient at the same time. And I rely on things that I have written down too, because I can't think of everything all the time. And then sometimes I get the patient out the door and I'm charting and I'm thinking in my head, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I should have said and educated. And I'll just educate the next session. And sometimes I will call or send an email with a different handout that I should have done. So it's not that you're thinking about it all the time, but your brain starts to change and work in a way where you're kind of deciding and differentially diagnosing the more you do it. But Mm -hmm. If you don't do it as often, it's it's harder to remember all the basic things. So I think that's normal. Okay. Okay. Good. Well, that was very kind. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So we've got those four types. What's next? Let's talk a little bit about the types of voice evaluations that you might need to do. Because if a person is on your caseload with a voice disorder, you may get a great referral from the physician that explains what they saw, what they think is going on, and they're right on the money. And your work is done for you. And you just need to kind of flesh out the education and recommendations for the patient. However, you don't always get that. And sometimes you get an incorrect diagnosis or the physician just says, see this SLP for speech therapy. And then you're left with, well, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in evaluation. So there are types of voice evaluations that we'll get into in just a little bit, but the main categories are behavioral voice evaluation, and that's going to be CPT code 92524. Another option is acoustic and aerodynamic evaluations, and that's going to be 92520. And then the other option for voice evaluation would be a video stroboscopic voice evaluation. So video stroboscopy, and that's going to be CPT code 31579. Do you always have to do all three of these? 
to be effective? No. Does it help to have the most data? Yes. Maybe you don't have access to a video stroboscopy or you're going off of the report that the physician sends and maybe you just get the words and without video. So you can still be effective at evaluating because most people are doing, if you're taking basic measures, and I mean basic, basic, like you may be doing S to Z ratio, you may be qualifying the voice in some way, like with Cape V or with a GERBOS uh, perceptual rating scale, you may be giving the patient some patient uh, measured reported outcomes, so like some PROMs with the vocal handicap index, or you may be giving them a reflux symptom index, and then just kind of asking them their concerns and, and taking case history. And so if that's basically what you're doing, you're doing a behavioral voice evaluation. You're you're getting a history, you're listening to what they sound like, and then you're stimulating or probing to see if they sound better or if they feel better with the things that you're giving them. And I think it's really important to determine initially when you're evaluating a person what their main concern is. Because if you're just getting the diagnosis of voice disorder or hoarseness, that's a really common uh, diagnosis that you get. The person may not care at all what they sound like, but maybe voicing is extremely painful for them or it's very fatiguing. And so although you will start to teach them things that help them sound better quality wise, you need to always keep in mind if their initial goal was to optimize by lessening the fatigue and lessening the pain, you need to still be making sure you're making progress towards that goal instead of getting caught up on, oh, listen to how great you sound. There's no roughness. Like they may not care at all. That is so key. I'm so glad you pointed that out because yeah, we might think we're over here like, oh my gosh, they sound so much better. We're making so gains. They must be so happy with what we're doing in therapy, but their concern was less effort improving vocal stamina. And they really don't feel like they've made progress on that. So like you're wrapping up therapy and you're like, we're done here. And they're like, I don't feel successful at all. Yeah. Yeah. In school, I think we're taught to make sure that we give the parts of therapy that, you know, include vocal health and vocal hygiene and wellness. Have we done all of that? Hydration, phonotrauma prevention, big check mark, right? Um, have we optimized the vocal subsystem coordination with resonant voice or with strophonation or with uh, stretch and flow? Check. And we forget to say, well, even if I don't meet all the goals that I had initially set up thinking I was going to have them all still dovetail into the patient's overall main goal, it's okay. Like you can always abandon a goal. I used to think, oh, well, Miss Susan didn't get to 90% on that goal about hydration every day. You know, we have to keep her on caseload because I need to make sure that I teach her that. And it's just, that's just not the case. Like Miss Susan probably didn't care if she's sitting there telling you my life is better. I'm not coughing anymore. I I don't bother the people at church. I can go see a movie and not have to leave early because my chronic cough is gone. That's what they want. They don't want to say I'm 100% knowledgeable in everything to have to do with vocal wellness, health, and hygiene. Yeah, that's another excellent point, Christy. Thank you so much for bringing that up too. Yeah, you can abandon a goal. Like I've written crappy goals. I thought were wonderful at the time as we get through therapy. They don't matter. And maybe the needs shift or the priorities shift. I will discharge that goal is not met and not feel like a failure. That is okay because like my success is contingent upon the patient's success and whatever that looks like, that's winning. So yeah, most definitely. Anybody out there listening, like you can abandon a goal. You are not a failure. The patient is not a failure. That's right. Good point. Needs shift and they may shift in a, in a therapy session. 
And I think we had kind of talked a little bit about wanting to establish foundational knowledge on the settings in which an SLP might treat voice disorders. You can be in an inpatient hospital and have your laptop and have acoustic software set up really basic and take acoustic measures. You can have an outpatient clinic and do the same if they're coming to you. It's easier that way. You could put, you could do home health and bring your laptop with your setup and and just be in the same room and and calibrate your equipment where you're able to assess acoustically and assess aerodynamically for that patient. And even in private practice, which I'm at, I mean, I don't have the most expensive equipment out there. It does what I need it to do. There are articles and evidence-based approaches that I'm using for that evaluation. And it's totally doable. And I'm getting measures that I can use to mark and track progress that are objective. And I think that that is just as important as subjective assessment too. But then you could do it in a school, in a school setting. So if you are treating pediatric patients, you can have a setup in your speech room as well with a microphone, with an audio interface, and not spend a whole lot of money on setting that up, but you really will be doing right by your patients to do so. So anywhere you can do a behavioral voice evaluation, you can really do acoustics and aerodynamics, even without having to purchase the really, really expensive software that you used in grad school. Because that stuff's awesome and it's great. It makes it very easy and it prints out great charts and reports and things. But in the real world, you are likely going to be very lucky if you work in a center that has the funding to purchase something so great for you. And if they have, awesome. But if not, I just want SLPs out there to know that there are options for doing these other evaluations that can be very useful kind of on the cheap. Well, tell me all the things. Yeah. So let's start with behavioral voice evaluation, what that might look like when you might want to use that and then how you could apply it. There is a really great article that was published in 2018 on ASHA and I have this linked in your show notes, but this was created by Rita Patel, a ton of people, Shahina Wan, uh, Julie Barkmeyer-Kramer, Mark Corey, and others. It's a huge document about being able to develop a protocol for assessment of vocal function. And what it goes through is what you might need to include uh, for evaluating for video stroboscopy, like looking at those and exactly what tasks because we don't really have things that are standardized for that. And it really goes through exactly what you might want to do, what you're visualizing. The article also goes through recommendations for acoustic assessment. So things that you might want to be taking and and why. So this article is linked in the show notes and I think quite great. But behavioral voice evaluation can include, like I was talking about earlier, those patient reported outcome measures or PROMs depending on the type of complaint the patient has. So if a person comes and says, I'm hoarse, or my singing voice fatigues really easily, or I just don't sound like I used to, my main things I'll have them fill out during that evaluation would be the vocal handicap index 10, or the VHI 10, Mm -hmm. the reflux symptom index, so the RSI, and then if it's a singing voice problem, I would introduce the singing vocal handicap index, which those are all 10 question questionnaires. If a person is having problems with chronic cough 
or paradoxical vocal fold motion or vocal cord dysfunction, VCD. You have options of the dyspnea severity index, the cough severity index, and the um, vocal cord dysfunction questionnaire. And the, the VCDQ is, I believe, 60 questions. So it's a little bit no, I'm sorry. It's 60 points. The rating system's larger. So using that can help you, even if you have no equipment to record and you have no video stroboscopy, you can use those measures to help your patients because you know how they felt about their initial presentation. You can give that to them in a few weeks after you start to see that there's improvement and you're kind of trying to decide, do I need to discharge? Do we need to keep going? Can we go to once every two weeks? Helping you make clinical decisions. But then also when they're good to go and you know it, have them fill it out again and see where they're scoring on that. You can also complete a perceptual evaluation on your end. So you can use something like the CAPE-V or the Consensus Auditory Perceptual Evaluation of Voice. You can use the GERBOS, which is grade, roughness, asthenia, which is weakness, wait, breathiness. I'm like trying to spell it in my head um, and then strain and rating those as well. I grew up in school using just Cape V. That doesn't mean Gerboss is inferior. Tons of people use it. I think the beautiful thing about Cape V is you can add your own categories because if you're just looking at overall severity, roughness, breathiness, strain, loudness, intensity, oh, loudness is intensity, pitch is the other one. You can add a category for tremor or, and then rate that on a zero to a hundred scale, or you can add a category for uh, multiple phonia, which is like more than one sound coming out at once, or uh, like, is that really roughness? Like, what does your ear really hear? And you can, you can be more specific about what you're picking up as a clinician uh, with your ear. The other thing you can do in a behavioral voice evaluation is put hands on the patient. You're going to kind of be limited if you're doing it virtually, but what I've been doing virtually since COVID is actually having the patient touch themselves, and I'm kind of guiding them on the virtual platform just so I can ask them what they feel because that's better than just eliminating it from the assessment in the first place. But if I have them in front of me, I'm palpating shoulders, back of the neck, jaw, face of the tongue, and the larynx moving it side to side and feeling in certain places to determine if the larynx is doing anything um, that might be abnormal. I'll also ask the patient if, especially if they're complaining of pain, so odynophonia, if they touch themselves in a certain place on their throat or if I touch them, if they have pain, where it is, and then what it feels like. Is it sharp and stabbing? Is it dull and aching? Is it you know, fiery? Is it, does it make them wince? That kind of thing. And what does that tell you? Those, those different types of pain, like stabbing versus, you know, pulsing, what does that tell you? So if it's a dull aching muscular pain, I would think that's more of um, the body's response to overuse. And this is just potentially, right? It could vary patient to patient, but if it's a more of a sharp stabbing pain, I might be more thinking that it's a granuloma. Like, like a growth perhaps that, that has been known to cause patients a lot of pain when they're talking or when they're phonating. Also, uh, it would help me determine if voice therapy is not working and the patient's still complaining of this pain, if I need to be thinking in my head, referral to laryngology to decide if they might need a superior laryngeal nerve injection or if they might need to be evaluated to see if it's Eagle syndrome. So if it, it might depend on how they're describing that pain. And then if that pain is the same and persists day after day, it might help me if voice therapy is not fixing that 
to give them the right referral and the right thoughts and questions to ask as they attempt that secondary referral um, to get better treatment to get them fixed. So what's Eagle syndrome? <laughs> Eagle syndrome is, it has to do with the stylohyoid muscle. And there's actually a really great blog. I interviewed Grace Olmstead on my website. She had Eagle syndrome and was treated with voice therapy and was not getting good answers. And so I interviewed her for that blog to know, to let people know more about that. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was wrong. The style, the styloid process. See, I don't know everything. I have to remind myself, but it's, it elongates or calcifies or makes it really hard. That stylohyoid ligament and you need surgery to fix that. And so if that's really identified as the source of the pain for the person, no amount of voice therapy is going to fix that for, for them. And so it's important to know about these types of things so that if, if what you're doing is not seeming to, it's presenting like muscle tension dysphonia, you're doing what you think is right, nothing's improving, the patient's frustrated, you're like, I've used everything in my wheelhouse. What do I do? And then people don't believe you. Like they're like, well, we can't see anything, you know, and then they dismiss you. Yeah. This blog's really great. She talks about, she's an SLP as well. She, she had surgery, but she had done this because she Googled it. Like she went online and her ENT scanned her and then she had two different surgeries, which helped her. Anyway, back to why we went off here. The pain is important to describe because you want to know when that pain is happening and then how the patient's describing it to see if it stays consistent throughout treatment or if it changes. All that information is going to be really helpful if you have to refer that patient on. Another thing you can do is assess breathing, which you should be doing. How fast a person might be talking or slow. Are they breathing clavicularly where they're really raising their chest and their shoulders every time they inhale? Are they using more of a thoracic expansion? Is it more abdominal? That's going to help you determine something you could address if it's causing irritation to or causing tension or causing pain as well. If they can focus the breath further down and they're not utilizing muscles above the shoulder level, so neck level muscles just to breathe in. Also, this is helpful to assess in VCD patients and chronic cough patients. They may have no idea that that's happening. They may just feel like, I can't get a breath in, but they haven't really thought about what their whole body is doing and reacting when they when they get an attack or they have an episode. That's what I was looking for. But yeah, that's a pretty good round out on the things you can do. And that's, you know, with no equipment. Like, Kate V, you can download from ASHA free. It's it's easy to, to do that. And you can be like me and create a template that pre-populates in your software so that you know and you don't forget to address all of those things when the patient's in your chair. Okay. So are we ready for acoustic and aerodynamic voice eval? I think we are. Super. Let's start with acoustic evaluations. So if you're doing acoustic and you're doing aerodynamic, both of those are going to fall under that 92520 CPT code. A lot of people that I have talked to think acoustics may just be taking fundamental frequency or the pitch average that a person might be speaking at and, and think that that's enough. And they think aerodynamic assessment is taking S to Z ratio and thinking that that's enough. I mean, I'm not here to tell you what you need to do with your license, but what I will suggest is that I don't feel that S to Z ratio alone constitutes an aerodynamic evaluation. You need to be assessing a measurable of amount of air in the lungs and how that's working. So with acoustics, to really get a good idea 
of quantitative data, you should be trying to include, yes, fundamental frequency, yes, maximum phonation time, yes, highs and lows to establish a voice range profile. And if you don't have the fancy software to do that, like CSL from Pentax, you can download some programs that are free or that cost a little bit of money. The free program you can use is Pratt and you can download that online. Um, Liz Grillo has created an app that you can send home with your patients and get measures to, and that's called Voice of Value 8, the number 8, and that gathers measures as well. You can use Pratt to collect the lowest note possible, the highest note possible, get the frequency amount that's the difference, and then put that into your semitone range formula to create to find semitone range for that person and see if that's normal or not. You can create loudness and softness. So what loud intensity does to the voice and how loud they can be um, and how soft they can be. Importance on the intensity. Would something like LSVT or Speak Out or Forte be appropriate for your patient to help with them sounding better? Why do you care about voice range? Because if they can't go above a certain pitch, they might have superior laryngeal nerve paralysis that you would have not caught on video stroboscopy. These are important to catch and to be able to give quantitative data for because it helps guide your treatment and give your patient answers. Because if it's a singer and they're like, I can't hit my high notes. And you're like, well, your strobe looks fine. You sound fine. See you later. They're like, you're not listening to me. And if you had just taken a voice and simple voice range profile, you could have said, oh, you only have a 200 hertz difference between your lowest note and your highest note. Maybe you have some paralysis on a different, you know, branch of the nerve um, than the one that controls the opening and the closing of the vocal cords. It's the one that actually tilts the larynx to allow for elongation of the folds to change pitch. So then you would want to take I'm going to slow down here. Shimmer and jitter. I did this on another thing the other day and I, I did it. I switched them. It was so bad. We always have to be careful around shimmer and jitter. <laughs> if you are using those still, they are antiquated. You should be studying up and reading up on Kepstrel Peak Prominence. And taking that, you can do that through Pratt. And then with Phonanium plugins, which do cost a little bit, the Phonanium plugins to Pratt allow you to find Kepstrel peak prominence. And then that goes into another formula to find acoustic voice quality index. And that is going to be akin to data that you might get from the CSL software again. Shahina Wan has done studies on finding what's normal and what's not for that. And then Yuri Marin and team has done uh, studies for ABQI. So either way, if you're using CSL, great. You're getting measures that are backed up. If you're using phonanium plugins with Pratt, again, different measures, but you're still getting measures that you can use to identify um, dysphonia in a quantitative way. So that's what you should be striving to take for acoustic measures. Then you want to take, did I say fundamental frequency, like having them read the rainbow passage and, and take an average of that if I didn't, because you're going to pull to find ABQI, you're pulling a sentence from the rainbow passage and you're pulling three seconds of a sustained awe. So what I'll do is I'll record maximum phonation time on an awe. I'll select and extract three seconds of that to run ABQI script. But in the same way, I'm taking that maximum phonation time and that helps me find 
the aerodynamic measures that I'm going to talk about. So if you're lucky enough to be able to do aerodynamics with the PAS system, the pneumotachograph device requires calibration. Um, you get that you, as an option with the CSL software and that Pentax setup. But if you don't have the money for that or access to that, you can still get measures, two of them, phonation quotient and estimated mean flow rate. There is a Rao and Beckett 1984 article on PubMed. And if you want to read through that, you can find out the formulas that they used to collect that data. You need a person, you need a spirometer. And I got mine online and I think it was like 150 bucks. And I use these tubes. So they're not putting their mouth on the spirometer every time. And then I have them blow. I get vital capacity from them. And then I put that formula with the maximum phonation amount, maximum phonation time. And then I'm finding that for phonation quotient and estimated mean flow rate. And it's important for those numbers. How, why would it matter? Like, why do I need to know these things? For a patient who has issues with glottic closure, those numbers might look a certain way. And if you have a patient who has extreme hyperfunction, so strain, use of the false vocal folds, plica, plica ventricularis, if you're having those false vocal folds come in to either vibrate or just inhibit and restrict actual phonation from occurring from the, the true vocal fold, then those aerodynamic measures look a different way as well. It's important to read up on the options that you have that you can actually get, again, more quantitative data to help you guide. And it's funny because I had a chronic, was it chronic cough or VCD? I had both this week, but we were looking at her saying, I had childhood asthma and do we think, and, and my thought was like, well, do we really think that the asthma is contributing to the VCD? She's been taking her inhaler, but it hasn't been working or doing anything to improve her. I wanted to know, does she have a small vital capacity? Like, is the ability for her to access air maybe making an impact? And she had had a really normal vital capacity. So I would have maybe done things slightly differently and, and talked about different things regarding who put her on that inhaler and if she should continue to stay on it while we're treating the VCD, if it had looked a little bit different. So the, the acoustic measures that you can take are not a lot if you practice and kind of have a blueprint of what you're going to be doing. And the aerodynamic is, I mean, it takes no time at all. You have them blow in the spirometer. And what I did is I created an Excel spreadsheet that did the formulas for me because I didn't become a speech pathologist because I was good at math, but I don't like to do that math stuff. So I, I plug in my numbers, I get what I need, and then I, I move on and, and use that in the evaluation report. So it sounds like there's like a little bit of preparation to learn how to capture these measures, but then, and once you get like a blueprint and that like formula in place, then you're just plugging in numbers and moving on and so it's like work at the setup. And once you get familiar with that pattern and that routine, you are good to go and it saves you time in the long run. You're absolutely right. It It is totally scary and overwhelming at first, but isn't everything. I remember the first time I gave the Goldman Fristo. <laughs> it was so long. I was like, this is so scary. I mean, they're going to, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, or maybe the BDAE. So if you do it, practice it. And then I joke in between, like it's, it's finesse now where, if I've forgotten something, I'm like, oops, forgot this. Let's plug that in, you know, put that mic back on. So even you might forget if you get to talking with the patient because you have good rapport. I mean, you always want good rapport. So um, that's why I just have everything pre-made. So I'm 
helping myself in the session to keep myself on track. So we have, um, we're at 40 minutes now and we still need to go into video stroboscopy. So <laughs> um, are we ready for the final year? We're ready. I think so. So we'll, uh, we'll do uh, video stroboscopy. That's going to be CBT code 31579. And this is something that if you're listening to this podcast and you're overseas, so you're not in America, I don't know scope of practice allowances for SLPs to complete video stroboscopy. So you really would need to check with your governing board to determine if you're allowed to or not. But in America, we can, without a doctor present or with, but trained, we have to know what we're doing and, and abide by our code of ethics, but we can provide these exams. And it's great because if you get a referral from otolaryngologist who's just general ENT, the patient comes, maybe they maybe they were scoped with a flex scope through the nose. The doctor says, okay, I see vocal nodules. The person's like, okay. So they go. And then if you as the SLP can perform the video stroboscopy and say, actually, that's looking to me like it's more of a growth inside the vocal cord swollen up and on the other side there's just some reactionary swelling you would absolutely treat that person differently than if they had vocal nodules or they come in and you look and there's nothing there you say well you probably had some mucus that was clinging to these certain areas of the vocal cords it looked as though they were nodules but with this more sensitive exam we were able to rule that out um, and again the treatment is different but if that and that, that happens frequently in my clinic so if you're not sure what you're looking at, the treatment's different. And the thing with video stroboscopy is that there, there's a blog on my website. I'm pretty sure it's diagnoses are changed. There must be something in the water. So it's a play on the Carrie Underwood song. But if you find that, the link to that article is there where they looked at people who had voice complaints who went to see general ENT. They were scoped with just the eye, so with just light and the doc and doctor looking with their eyeball. And when they diagnosed with something, whatever it may have been, when they had video stroboscopy completed, their diagnosis was changed like 51% of the time. So I don't think that you should say, well, I don't have video stroboscopy. I can't give my patients good care. That's not what I'm trying to say. But if you have the option, the patient's not making improvements. I mean, there's, there's multiple things where you would really want to push for video stroboscopy. I'm always to say, yes, get that done because it's going to give you the absolute most clear picture, slow it down. You can show the patient because it records it on video, what they have going on. You would want to complete that and assess for closure if a person's having issues that the gross motor movement couldn't identify, like a small gap. Like maybe they have small atrophy on one vocal cord and we just couldn't catch it with, with endoscopy with the eye. That, that's, or, or paralysis or paresis. Like the patient's like, I'm having problems. I can feel this. And the ENT says, I don't see anything wrong. But if the ENT has video stroboscopy or if you can complete that exam, you're able to say, it's not all in your head. Look, we can see this deficit. Here are your options. Mm -hmm. But you can do video stroboscopy with a rigid scope through the mouth. You can do it with a flexible scope through the nose. There are multiple different vendors who sell those machines at varying prices. And I think it's a great option for really doing best by our patients and getting that instrumental because I'll say, I'll say it then I'll say it now. We can't treat what we can't see. There's so much, so much beautiful truth there. Like, <laughs> I mean, in just the examples that you've given, 
based on what you see, you treat that patient totally different. And in some cases, they don't need treatment because maybe it was just some mucus there that has now cleared. And so there is literally nothing to treat (laughs) all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then I can think of one patient who we were really sure it was vocal nodules. I did not strobe her. She'd come from a clinic that had video stroboscopy. I treated the nodules. She was not better. We did everything. And it was like seven weeks resting, stretch and flow, resonant voice, droponation, hydration, throat clear prevention, like all of these things, no, like zero improvement. And she, I think she'd come like after two weeks of strict voice rest or something. I was like desperate. I was like, we've got to do something that kind of just kicks this, kickstarts this. And I was like, what do you think about strobing today? And she's like, let's do it. So I do. And it's not nodules. (laughs) It's a cyst or it looks like a, like a, a growth that's in the cord in the inside it and round and mature, you know? And I'm thinking in my head, like I've been treating this thinking that these are going to recede and resolve and nothing is helping this person. She's at her wits end. I'm like, I don't know what else to give you, but we peaked. And I was like, Hey, I don't, I wouldn't expect this to go away with voice therapy based on how it looks. So it's such a great thing to give your patient the knowledge that they're not crazy, that they are not a failure. Cause she felt like I've been doing everything you've asked me to do. Why is it not better? The power of seeing. (laughs) Power of video stroboscopy. <laughs> Did you cover everything that you wanted to for that section? I think so. Perfect. Okay. All right. Well, then we're at a good time to um, kind of think about our closing statements, our closing thoughts. What might be one thing that you want our listeners to kind of take away and walk away from this this discussion? Well, from the very beginning of things, I've always wanted to make voice treatment, not intimidating. Mm -hmm. It was always for, at least in my experience in grad school that I knew I was interested in it, but it was confusing always when it was presented because it was like, well, here are these few things that are very finite and you can treat in this way. But then the very next statement might've been, but there are so many things you can do and like so many different things. And it's like, Well, you just said it was finite, but now it's not finite. I'm very confused. The other thing, humming, resonant voice therapy is a type of semi-occluded vocal tract exercise. So when I figured that out, it was like, oh, it, it, it just seemed intuitive that it was separate. Like to me, I was like, well, resonant voice is separate from semi-occluded vocal tract exercises, but then there's humming, but then how is that different? It's a type of it, but it just has a protocol. So, and, and, you know, Kitty create, Kitty Berlin Abbott creating Billy Sack Madsen at resonant voice therapy is a protocol, just like Joe Simple creating vocal function exercises is a protocol, but it includes, both of those approaches include semi-occluded vocal tract exercises, but you could totally use semi-occluded vocal tract exercises as a treatment approach on their own, like send a patient home with straw phonation four to six times a day for a minute or two in water, you know, that could be your approach. I just want patients or people who are listening to take away that it is not scary. And my goal is to create resources and educational opportunities so that people can be able to access that virtually to make them better, to make them more confident in treating the voice disorders. Because the patients, I mean, they need the help. They come to us after experiencing this difficulty for a while. 
and it's not getting better. Sometimes it's getting worse. And like with your example, you were like, why am I seeing a speech therapist for my voice problems? So they might even be coming to us with hesitations to begin with. And then if we don't feel confident in the skills that we have to offer, then we might be reinforcing that thought that the patient had. So it's, there's so many tools out there to help us become more confident and clarify our approaches to the evaluation and the treatment process. So I really appreciate when our specialists who do voice, who can wrap their head around all of this and break it down for us and, and teach us who have to be generalists and give us the tools and the skills um, to increase that confidence. That's really helpful. Vasilian, I appreciate what you do because we learned years ago in, from textbooks and it takes a long time to get the textbook written, to get the textbook proofed, and then the textbook published. And so kids coming through school might be using a textbook that's six years old. What you're doing with this podcast is amazing because you're able to get the information out there that's newer from the research articles that are just coming out. And the information can then be disseminated to the masses of speech pathologists who need it now. It's amazing. And we're lucky to live in this day and age because our patients are really benefiting because of the things that you know, people like you are doing with these podcasts. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's a big mission to just spread that information because as a clinician searching for it, I had a hard time finding it. <laughs> so it was like, it, it really just comes down to having conversations with the people in the know who are doing the research or who are practicing or who are specializing and then making that available. So that's the beauty of a podcast, I reckon. You do a great job. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Well, that's our time. Thank you so much, Christy. This was amazing. How can people reach out um, if they want to learn more about what you do and um, some of the tools that you have to offer? Yeah. So my website is atempovoicecenter.com, A-T-E-M-P-O. Or if you just put that into Google, my website will pop up. It includes blog, my emails there, links to my social media, which I'm very active on Instagram and newly on TikTok. Um, you should go. <laughs> Yes. Don't look at that TikTok, y'all. It is fabulous. I've been <laughs> loving it. It's so good, Christy. Oh. Kill it. Crush it. Go get it, girl. <laughs> I'm making it. Um, but yeah, on Instagram, I'm K-R-I-S-T-I-E underscore voice. On my website, you can join the voice community email list and I send links to my blogs. I send products. I send freebies. I send discount codes for new products that I create. If you want, to have a blueprint of what we were, I was discussing with the evaluation. I have created an adult voice evaluation guide and a pediatric one with actual flip cards that the kid can hold so that they have something tangible and you can go through that. And those are both available on my website and then also on my Teachers Pay Teacher store. On Pinterest, I'm Autempo Voice on Pinterest.com slash Autempo Voice. And then um, most recently, uh, Kara Bryan, Aaron Ziegler, and I have created the Confident Clinician Cooperative, which is our mission is to virtually provide training and consulting and education for voice therapy. So our goal is to create hopefully um, educational opportunities and then um, like a therapy library where you can go figure out, okay, I have a patient with this problem potentially. Can I go watch therapy being done live, you know, recorded so I can make sure that I feel confident in seeing, seeing examples of that, especially now because COVID's really put a hamper on 
voice placement, extern externships, period, CFY opportunities, and then also jobs being, you know, hired. And then it's really thrust us into uh, providing virtual therapy. So we created a webinar back in April about troubleshooting voice, voice therapy and voice evaluation, even virtually, and what you need to be considering and thinking about and what you can try ethically and all okay. that. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Good. All right, folks, go out there, find those things, learn about stuff. It's great. <laughs> All right, Christy, thank you so much. Thanks, Leanne. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 